Welcome back to Night School, episode 14, Song of Myself, part 12. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Schatz. Welcome back on this wonderful Friday afternoon, Mr. West. Yeah, good to be back. Good to have you back. And um, well, I'm glad that we're doing this. And it's so interesting that it's going to start with the words uh, space and time, because certainly this next part is going to take some space and some time. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm fairly happy that you are the one that is reading it uh, this time around. And uh, well, those who are listening too, I, I'd like to thank the listeners because we've really seen uh, a jump in the people listening to this, um, to, to our podcast lately. And I got to say that I love doing this even when nobody's listening, just getting a chance to do this with you, Wes, and to be a, a part of sort of the uh, eternal experience that is the, the, the poetry that man makes. Um, but I don't know. I'm pretty stoked. It's pretty exciting just to have a few more people listening to us. It, it makes a big difference to me. Sure. And, you know, sure. It's exciting because, well, I mean, it's like, you know, when you're in the front of the classroom and you're talking about something that you really love and you look around and the kids are like, you know, drooping in their seats, that's not so encouraging. But it's, you know, this is more like you're talking about the thing that you love and there's people who are attentive and maybe even raising a hand, trying to hazard a thought out there. I would love to hear, you know, if there's more listeners, what do you guys think? Like, what's your comments? What's your questions? Send them in, send us a, a drop us a line or, or record a little message and send it our way. Uh, keep it coming. Yeah, and we are educators. If you happen to be a teacher of American poetry or you just want to throw your hat in the ring, you think we, uh, we've missed the point, commit some hamartia on some uh, – some point and you want to come on in and school us a little bit teach us something that you know we could stand to know about or help inform our our view or you know change uh, alter it where it's incorrect you know i think we're we as teachers are certainly always students and it'd be great to have people on if they wanted to correct our errors or or learn alongside us which i think is the ideal that we're striving towards <laughs> Yeah, so open invitation and maybe some more specific invitations to follow. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into 33. I'm going to stop at a certain point after this long, long stanza, and we can talk about everything up to that point, and then we can pick up and read the rest. All right, yeah. only space and time, nothing big. <laughs> 33, space and time. Now I see it is true what I guessed at, what I guessed when I loafed on the grass. What I guessed while I lay alone in my bed, and again as I walked the beach under the paling stars of the morning, my ties and ballasts leave me, my elbows rest in sea gaps. I skirt Sierras, my palms cover continents, I am afoot with my vision. By the city's quadrangular houses and log huts, camping with lumbermen, along the ruts of the turnpike, along the dry gulch and rivulet bed, Weeding my onion patch, or hoeing rows of carrots and parsnips, crossing savannas, trailing in forests, prospecting, gold digging, girdling the trees of a new purchase, scorched ankle deep by the hot sand, hauling my boat down the shallow river, where the panther walks to and fro on a limb overhead, where the buck turns furiously at the hunter, where the rattlesnake suns his flabby length on a rock, where the otter is feeding on fish, where the alligator in his tough pimple sleeps by the bayou, where the black bear is searching for roots or honey, where the beaver pats the mud with his paddle-shaped tail, 
over the growing sugar, over the yellow flowered cotton plant, over the rice in its low moist field, over the sharp peaked farmhouse with its scalloped scum and slender shoots from the gutters, over the western persimmon, over the long leaved corn, over the delicate blue flower fat flax, over the white and brown buckwheat, a hummer and buzzer there with the rest, over the dusky green of the rye as it ripples and shades in the breeze. Scaling mountains, pulling myself cautiously up, holding on by low scragged limbs, walking the path worn in the grass and beat through the leaves of the brush, where the quail is whistling betwixt the woods and the wheat lot, where the bat flies the seventh month eve, where the great gold bug drops through the dark, where the brook puts out of the roots of the old tree and flows to the meadow, where cattle stand and shake away flies with the tremulous shuddering of their hides, where the cheesecloth hangs in the kitchen, where andirons straddle the hearth slab, where cobwebs fall in festoons from the rafters, where trip hammers crash, where the press is whirling its cylinders, wherever the human heart beats with terrible throes under its ribs, where the pear-shaped balloon is floating aloft, floating in it myself and looking composedly down, where the life car is drawn on the slip noose, where the heat hatches pale green eggs in the dented sand, where the she-whale swims with her calf and never forsakes it, where the steamship trails hindways its long pennant of smoke, where the fin of the shark cuts like a black chip out of the water, where the half-burned brig is riding on unknown currents, where shells grow to her slimy deck, where the dead are corrupting below, where the dense starred flag is borne at the head of the regiments approaching Manhattan up by the long stretching island under Niagara, the cataract falling like a veil over my countenance, upon a doorstep, upon the horse block of hardwood outside, upon the race course, or enjoying picnics or jigs or a good game of baseball, at he festivals with blackguard jibes, ironical license, bull dances, drinking laughter, at the cider mill tasting the sweets of the brown mash, sucking the juice through a straw, at apple peelings wanting kisses for all the red fruit I find, at musters, beach parties, friendly bees, huskings, house raisings, where the mockingbird sounds his delicious gurgles, crackles, screams, weeps, where the hayrick stands in the barnyard, where the dry stalks are scattered, where the brood cow waits in the hovel, where the bull advances to do his masculine work, where the stud to the mare, where the cock is treading the hen, where the heifers browse, where geese nip their food with short jerks, where sundown shadows lengthen over the limitless and lonesome prairie, where herds of buffalo make a crawling spread of the square miles far and near, where the hummingbird shimmers, where the neck of the long-lived swan, long-lived swan is curving and winding, where the laughing gull scoots by the shore, where she laughs her near-human laugh, where beehives range on a gray bench in the garden half hid by the high weeds where band-necked partridges roost in a ring on the ground with their heads out, where burial coaches enter the arched gates of a cemetery, where winter wolves bark amid wastes of snow and icicled trees, where the yellow-crowned heron comes to the edge of the marsh at night and feeds upon small crabs, where the splash of swimmers and divers cools the warm noon, 
where the katydid works her chromatic reed on the walnut tree over the well through patches of citrons and cucumbers with silver-wired leaves, through the salt lick or orange glade or under conical firs, through the gymnasium, through the curtains, saloon, through the office or public hall, pleased with the native and pleased with the foreign, pleased with the new and old, pleased with the homely woman as well as the handsome, pleased with the Quakeress as she puts off her bonnet and talks melodiously, pleased with the tune of the choir of the white-watched church, pleased with the earnest words of the sweating Methodist preacher, impressed seriously at the camp meeting, looking in at the shop windows of Broadway the whole forenoon, flatting the flesh of my nose on the thick plate glass, wandering the same afternoon with my face turned up to the clouds or down a lane or along the beach, my right and left arms round the sides of two friends and I in the middle, coming home with the silent and dark-cheeked bush boy. Behind me he rides at the drape of the day, far from the settlement studying the print of animals' feet or the moccasin print, by the cot in the hospital, reaching lemonade to a feverish patient, nigh the coffined corpse when all is still, examining with a candle, voyaging to every port to dicker and adventure, hurrying with the modern crowd as eager and fickle as any, hot toward one I hate, ready in my madness to knife him, solitary at midnight in my backyard, my thoughts gone from me a long while, walking the old hills of Judea, with the beautiful, gentle God by my side, speeding through space, speeding through heaven and the stars, speeding amid the seven satellites and the broad ring and the diameter of 80,000 miles, speeding with tailed meteors, throwing fireballs like the rest, carrying the crescent child that carries its own full mother in its belly, storming, enjoying, planning, loving, cautioning, backing and filling, appearing, and disappearing, I tread day and night such roads. Wow, what a Herculean effort, Wes. Well done. And I have to say, uh, really a Herculean effort on the listeners' parts and my part, just to pay attention for that long. <laughs> and I would say that's precisely what Walt Whitman is doing here, right? He begins with space and time, and then gives us uh, this sort of perception as if he is a god, again, something that he's done before, where he sort of identifies himself with a transpersonal eternal force, which might also be the epic tradition. What I guessed when I loafed on the grass, when I guessed when I lay alone in my bed, that's human, buddy. And again, as I walk the beach under the paling stars in the morning, again, human, uh, uh, um, here is it, here it is, though. I skirt Sierra's, my palms cover continents, I am afloat with my vision. And yet, what makes his perspective so divine is the breadth of his experience and uh, just how normal it is. And there seem to be several nods in this. A, the length, right? This is supposed to uh, be a pastiche of a human life and the fullness of it. And if you actually imagine what is being read, it, it really helps you to stay paying attention, right? Like along the ruts of the turnpike. So you actually imagine the turnpike and then a dry gulch and a rivulet bed. And then you see the intuitive connection, right? that these are all sort of like methods of transportation for humans. And he takes us back through uh, uh, levels of sophistication, right? From Turnpike, which is a part of a sophisticated city with excellent transportation methods. So, I mean, so excellent that the roads are flat, right? The actual ways you can get to places are totally flat and um, maybe not as much as his, as his time, but they are made so that you can move faster, quicker on them. 
than in times past, but the idea seems to be the same. And so he's also connecting to the epic tradition, not only in you know writing in English as an American um, with American experiences, but he also does something that all epic writers do, including Homer and Virgil. Virgil with a catalog of of um, of the fighters who will come to uh, fight at Latium, and Homer very famously in Book Two of the Iliad in the catalog of ships. Um, Ovid and Dante also do it, but I can't remember exactly what Ovid catalogs in the Metamorphoses, but it'd be easy enough to look up. He, he puts an ironic twist on it, as usual. Um, but we get this long-ass list, essentially. And that is something that the epic writers do in order to show off not only their skill with language, but also the range of their experience, and also the fact that they think you will keep reading for that long. And also it is an act of endurance on their part to sort of tour de force show how much breath they can take in and then spew out with information all at once. And uh, to keep an audience member's attention and thus stretch the uh, limits of their focus as well. This full of anaphora, where, 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 over, 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 uh, where, where, where. It also bespeaks to me the imagery of like the, of the seven days of creation from Genesis. It's just long that it's, it's one thing and then the other, and it is the creation of all things or the sharing of all things. And which, which also, which also brings me to my point. I hope I don't forget it trying to bring up so much all at once, which I suppose is his problem in point two. He, he may also be showing here um, just how long some things can feel depending on what the frame of the experience is that all this happens within one stanza, like, like it happens within one breath, like it happens within one perceptual schema, as if it's just a lot to deal with and a lot to handle all at once, and that there are also experiences in life that are unpleasant for precisely the same reason. Almost a dantistic point of view on the Inferno that what makes something hellish is the repetitive nature of it without uh, growth or new information and thus the uh, production of hope in your life. I think that's about what I've got for now. Um, also, again, uses the imagery of the common experiences, sort of Socratic, like we've said again. So yeah, that's what I've got for now. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the dominant impression for me reading it was the, um, the, the, this, this felt a little more rhythmic than other portions of it where he seems to be doing a little more varying of, of lengths of lines and things like that. This felt a little more regular and maybe that was just because it was so insistent and driving but um but within that the the lines that all start start with where certainly the uh the strong impression is of space and i think yes. as you said you get the time the time comes in because it takes so long to read this thing uh to to layer all these wares on one another and it's kind of interesting for me to think about, um, again, where does his inspiration come from? Where does he decide that at the end of this line, I'm going to go there next? You know, like, that's, that's a fascinating question to me. Um, and whether he how, does or whether he <laughs> works right? through Right? It's, because, like, I, it strikes me that an intuitive connection or a poetic connection is, like, what the unions call... And, and also the Freudians, free association, 
Mm -hmm. right? And when you're sitting there just going idea to idea, sort of like in a dream, it's unclear to me, and I, I would directly say it is not the case that you choose which idea you connect to which next idea, but rather it is more like you are considering a general theme idly and ideas sort of bubble up or pop yeah. into the frame of reference in order to populate the theater of your consciousness with the appropriate images to give you the idea or to uh, like a, thes a thesaurus with several words describing another word to give you the right idea of it. These sort of ideas pop into the theater of your consciousness in order to uh, fill out what your notion of a theme is. So if you're like thinking of bad things, like characters from movies that you know might pop up or like someone uh -huh. you know, and, or, and also maybe like sort of an image of a dark, like evil figure from a movie, or like if you're very religious, like a devil figure, uh, mm -hmm. you know, depending on what you've experienced in your life. And it's, it's as if he's just following that over and over um it's, yeah it's that kind of that kind of um incredible stock then that he's got bubbling on his um range that he that just sort of arises as he goes and goes and if if that's the case then i wonder also about as a reader of this right as a as a person reading this for the first time a lot of this stuff is not familiar to my experience per se um a lot of it's historical or um natural um it's out there in the world somewhere and someone has experienced this but i personally have not right, right. I, I have some things like it maybe but it's it's just an incredible like influx then of of all this um span of of lived experience and so the challenge, like you said, is to imaginatively fill it up with um, substance for yourself as you're reading. In the moment, it's difficult because it just washes over you. It's just a lot of syllables. Um, but the more, I agree, the more that you can kind of flesh those out with an accompanying image, uh, a, a, a smell, a memory, um, a story someone told you once, Right, suddenly you start to get engaged in it, and and that'll come and go because not every line is gonna speak to you quite the same. But but something in here has got to be able to touch practically everyone who could um, could could hear it. And you know, there's uh, thematically as well such a range of um, there's there's the religious again, there's the biological, um, the human, the animal. Uh, and uh, different kind of scenes are painted, the rural, the urban, um, so that you can, I think, get the sense that this person speaking is, is like you in some ways, right? But the overall s sweep of their experience is, is far beyond yours, and you're just kind of trying to, to keep up. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, and just to sort of take a pickaxe to the, the crude matter here and try and get some gold, I wish he had line numbers here, but where it says prospecting, let's see, it's, it's on the screen right now, right? It's actually right near the beginning. It's the third stanza here, prospecting, gold digging, girdling mm -hmm. the trees of a new purchase. I would invite someone just, imagine that, somebody like gold digging with like a pickaxe and like 
gardening the trees of a new purchase. Like, so I just imagine somebody gold digging. And then next, scorched ankle deep by the hot sand. It, it reminds me, at first you just hear hot sand and hauling my boat down the shallow river and you just hear hot sand and boat. And those just kind of make sense to you, sand and boat. Mm. But it reminds me of Shakespeare's um, sonnet, 119, it's 100 something, where he says, shall I compare you to a summer's day? Or, mm. And when you just superficially listen to that, you're like, oh, well, a summer's day is very beautiful. But then in the next line he says, well, it's not very temperate a summer's day. He actually criticizes the summer's day rather than you, making you all the more beautiful. And so it's only when I really engage with it that I get the meaning of it like that. And so scorched ankle deep by the hot sand is an unpleasant emotion. If you're on hot sand, that hurts. I know that I live in San Diego. It hurts a lot. You need people get like special sand booties so they don't get burned by the sand. And if you're ankle deep, it's hellish. It's like dantistic. And then hauling my boat down the shallow river, that's that's a pain in the that's a pain in the ass. That's a, that's a real pain to be doing that. It's not a pleasant experience. So he's going from like a really bad painful experience to an unpleasant experience and then there's a panther walking to and fro overhead that's sort of a and I'm, I'm just going to suggest the next several lines that are animalistic just out of nowhere he suggests fundamental human motivational systems through animals the panther walking to and fro on a limb overhead sort of predatory aggression right where the buck turns furiously at the hunter that's extraordinary panic for the hunter and again predatory uh, aggression for the buck these are high emotion moments uh, where the rattlesnake just the fact that you're think if you imagine a snake, it's creepy. Sun's his flabby length on a rock, but he's sleeping. He's totally okay, having a good time. And where the otter is feeding on a fish, well, that's predatory too, but also satiating. And uh, these are all experiences that humans have too, being in repose, eating something. We can, uh, we can understand these moments where the alligator and his tough pimple sleeps by the bayou again in repose, black bear searching for roots or honey. You know, we get hungry and search for food too, where the beaver pats the mud with his paddle shaped tail when he's making his home. We do all that. It's like, why is he telling us about these animals out of nowhere right now? If you're talking about finding gold, well, the idea seems to be that he's proving what he said earlier that a, he's definitely going to taste or test our patience and we better believe that he's going to say something meaningful to us because he's he's making us we are spending a lot of time on him right now in this in this stanza and this part in particular and two that when you really feel out the experience and look into it as much as possible that's how you derive the gold from it that's how you get the information out of the experience and i would say that that is the idea behind poetry and what he's going for either consciously or not um and this uh, you know, in, in you know, hellishly long part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the um, the sense of movement here is very interesting too, because as as you read, you can sort of you can sort of stack up the wares like to form one sort of continuous thread, or you can sort of just throw them out as scattered things. And I think you're correct that there's definitely specific um, sections of this that, that are kind of coherent within themselves and that make a lot more sense when you can kind of gather them together in a, in a bundle and see how they add to one another rather than taking these individual lines to be just simply a list, right? right. And I think that that's, that's kind of like 
how to um, deal with anything that's tedious or uh, hellish, right? Is like yes. you have to you have to not not only analyze it and figure out what's the problem, but then also synthesize and like fit together the different things that by themselves are not that like helpful, but that as as a whole you can sort of see it um, as a as an orderly and and not wholly um, malicious <laughs> thing. Well, that that's a perfect description of the difference between Dante's hell and Dante's purgatory. Yeah. That, that which is not in hell, which makes everything the same all the time, is the capacity to think. One is denied the good of the intellect, explicitly said. And thus one has no hope because one does not apply one's mind to categorizing one's day so that one can judge between each day so that one can observe one's progress. And in fact, that's exactly what the the point of being able to rest in the purgatorio is, which is mentioned in um, Canto 12, I believe, uh, lines 82 to 84. <laughs> I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly confident that's exactly correct. And, um, <laughs> and um, it's, it's 84 is actually the line I'm thinking of, um, where the, it's mentioned that uh, reflection is that which changes the... W reflection is that which changes the perception of each day that every day is the same but it is the reflecting mind that would the human element that makes real change occur within it and that that is precisely why things are all the same in hell and so i think you're right that this could be a hellish experience insofar as we don't apply our mind to it and thus group it and observe the changes in it if we if we don't pay attention and then and then use our ability to categorize so that we can appropriately see what's in front of us then we will not see anything and we will not see the change that is happening which we can only see when we pay attention and then correctly categorize uh moment to moment uh by by means of the same criteria like, like if you're on a fitness program and you work out five times a week and you put up and you write down how much weight you push one, one day and then the next day and then the next day and then the next week you push more weight and that's the principle of progressive overload and then you become stronger without categorizing and thus altering one's behavior in accordance with uh, one's goal and using categorizing in order to get towards there, one will not make any progress. And... Um, that seems to be the idea of the purgatory versus the inferno. And I think, I think that's sort of what you were, you were hinting at by suggesting that we need to bring something to this poem to make something of it. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. All right. All right. Let's, I'm going to read the rest and we'll say a little bit about it, but I think that's going to pretty much be our time. Okay. So picking up, I visit, <clears throat> I visit the orchards of spheres and look at the product and look at the quintillions ripened, and look at the quintillions green. I fly those flights of a fluid and swallowing soul. My course runs below the soundings of plummets. I help myself to material and immaterial. No guard can shut me off, no law prevent me. I anchor my ship for a little while only. My messengers continually cruise away or bring their returns to me. I go hunting, polar firs and the seal, leaping chasms with a pike-pointed staff, clinging to topples of brittle and blue. I ascend to the foretruck, 
I take my place late at night in the crow's nest. We sail the Arctic sea. It is plenty light enough. Through the clear atmosphere, I stretch around on the wonderful beauty. The enormous masses of ice pass me, and I pass them. The scenery is plain in all directions. The white-topped mountains show in the distance. I fling out my fancies towards them. We are approaching some great battlefield in which we are soon to be engaged. We pass the colossal outposts of the encampment. We pass with still feet and caution. Or we are entering by the suburbs some vast and ruined city. The blocks and fallen architecture more than all the living cities of the globe. I am a free companion. I bivouac by invading watchfires. I turn the bridegroom out of bed and stay with the bride myself. I tighten her all night to my thighs and lips. My voice is the wife's voice, the screech by the rail of the stairs. They fetch my man's body up dripping and drowned. I understand the large hearts of heroes, the courage of present times and all times, how the skipper saw the crowded and rudderless wreck of the steamship and death chasing it up and down the storm, how he knuckled tight and gave not back an inch and was faithful of days and faithful of nights and chalked in large letters on board, be of good cheer, we will not desert you. How he followed with them and tacked with them three days and would not give it up. How he saved the drifting company at last. How the lank, loose-gowned women looked when boated from the side of their prepared graves. How the silent, old-faced infants and the lifted sick and the sharp-lipped, unshaved men. All this I swallow. It tastes good. I like it well. It becomes mine. I am the man. I suffered. I was there. The disdain and calmness of martyrs, the mother of old, condemned for a witch, burnt with dry wood, her children gazing on, the hounded slave that flags in the race, leans by the fence, blowing, covered with sweat, the twinges that sting like needles, his legs and neck, the murderous buckshot and the bullets, all these I feel or am. I am the hounded slave. I wince at the bite of the dogs. Hell and despair are upon me. Crack and again crack the marksman. I clutch the rails of the fence. My gore dribs, thinned with the ooze of my skin. I fall on the weeds and stones. The riders spur their unwilling horses, haul close, taunt my dizzy ears, and beat me violently over the head with whip stalks. Agonies are one of my changes of garments. I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I myself become the wounded person. My hurts turn livid upon me as I lean on a cane and observe. I am the mashed fireman with breastbone broken. Tumbling walls buried me in their debris. Heat and smoke I inspired. I heard the yelling shouts of my comrades. I heard the distant click of their picks and shovels. They have cleared the beams away. They tenderly lift me forth. I lie in the night air in my red shirt. The pervading hush is for my sake. Painless after all, I lie exhausted, but not so unhappy. White and beautiful are the faces around me. The heads are bared of their fire caps. The kneeling crowd fades with the light of the torches. Distant and dead resuscitate. They show as the dial or move as the hands of me. I am the clock myself. 
I am an old artillerist. I tell of my fort's bombardment. I am there again. Again, the long roll of the drummers. Again, the attacking cannon, mortars. Again, to my listening ears, the cannon responsive. I take part. I see and hear the whole, the cries, the curses, roar, the plaudits for well-aimed shots, the ambulance slowly passing, trailing its red drip, workmen searching after damages, making indispensable repairs, the fall of grenades through the rent roof, the fan-shaped explosion, the whiz of limbs, heads, stone, wood, iron, high in the air. Again gurgles the mouth of my dying general. He furiously waves with his hand. He gasps through the clot. Mind not me, mind the entrenchments. All right, well, if we can get through that and a listener can get through listening to that entire part, truly you can get through anything. And um, that seems to be part of the point that he here identifies with uh, the suffering man, sort of like a, a Christian figure of Christ, right? The, the humanoid God or the human God that, it, that willingly sacrifices himself for a higher ideal on the cross, right? And um, so, so here he is, agonies are one of my changes of garment. So I am the hounded slave. There's very Christian imagery, like I am a slave to Christ, or Paul being amongst the, with the slave. I think it was Philemon. And also the sort of Pauline language of gar garment yourself in virtue, but here in agony, the, and then we literally have some religious language, disdain and calmness of martyrs. We have the word hell uh, uh, later. We have the ideas of witches, and there's no idea of witch without Christians who burn them, um, uh, at least later on. Uh, it, so it says the Halloween tree, which I recently showed my students by um, um, uh, Brewer Ray Bradbury, the writer of Fahrenheit 451. And um, where was that line? It was, ah, I am the man. I suffered. I was there. And uh, that, that strikes me as sort of a, like a, a line of Christ, right? I am the man, though a God. I suffered. I was there. I know what it was like, um, is sort of what he's saying there. It's like that's sort of a, like a skeleton key lodged in the middle. I am the man. I suffered. I was there. It also takes on a three-in-one form, which is potentially interesting. Uh, and then there's hell and the connection to despair. Uh, Again, it looks like a giant pastiche where he is claiming that the sum of human experience is essentially that which is God or heaven or the, the, uh, that which uh, Ganymede is taken up to, to receive the, the uh, food of the gods from or the nectar of the gods, which is, of course, intangible, but the Ganymede does not bring back. That the sort of Arabic philosophers following Plato, but not quite, uh, did not come back. Al-Farabi and Avicenna are particularly who I'm thinking of. Um, but that the idea is more like what Dante comes up with, where you have to go have your experiences, then you have to articulate them to somebody who hears you. You have to go out of the cave, then you need to come back in. You need to go up to heaven, but then you need to come back down. Um, sort of uh, perhaps uh, the problem with Frodo in Lord of the Rings, I don't know. But um, uh, he is here finally ready, like he was saying, and has gotten over his insecurities and is going to share in articulated form all that he has seen and all that he has heard. And, and, uh, and he has experienced it for himself. And that is his guarantee to offering something of value. He has felt this. 
it's real for him. Uh, and so we should, we should know that we are hearing something that is real, something living, something lived, not something dead. Um, and so that it has tremendous value for us. Yeah, the, I think the, um, the idea that the distant and dead resuscitate, right? Yeah. Um, is, is going along with that. And I think the image as well of right before um, I am the man, the line before that is all this I swallow, it tastes good. Yes, I like it well, exactly. it becomes my, it's a communion image, right? It's like yes. everyone's gathered at the, at the board, at the table, and um, it's all to be sort of embodied and to, um, to feed you, right? And to give you uh, strength. And, and that's, that seems to be what the, um, there's two passages here, two half lines of italic verse, which are in the mouth of leaders, right? The one is the captain on the ship, it seems like, the skipper. And the other at the very end of this section is the general, dying general. And he gasps through his, his uh, clotted throat, mind not me, mind the entrenchment. So there's this kind of um, encouragement of leaders of men, as well as uh, all of these yeah, embodiments of different people throughout this part. And it's make, it makes a really interesting like um, second half or whatever to, to what we read before, which is all places. So now we're getting all these people and these um, uh, different situations. And it's like, that's, that's going along with your point, right? That the, the perception and the people's intention and will and all of that is what kind of gives meaning to um, that expanse, that, that sweep of, of the cosmos. Yeah, and that people occupy roles which are effectively psychological places, right? The general. He's literally called a general as opposed to a private. He's not an individual. He's something that like, so anybody could be or has generalized intelligence or can focus at the general conceptual level rather than simply the, the uh, basic, sensual, uh, individualistic, uh, potentially even narcissistic level of a private, or what the Greeks would call an idiot, someone who can only understand his own language and no one else's. This is someone who can understand all languages. And well, the, just going to say that insofar as he says, mind not me, mind the entrenchments, it recalls to me a very famous, I think it's a Buddhist quote, which is, do not miss the moon, by staring at the finger pointing at it, and that he is here taking his role as poet and not simply trying to draw attention to himself as a person, but to draw uh, attention to that which is worthy of having attention drawn to it as a, as a poet, as part of an eternal chain, as occupying the same place as many other individuals, but in his own unique way. Um, and that that's sort of a I don't know. I think that's what mind not me, mind the entrenchments ultimately says. Like, don't don't worry about me dying. What matters is the role. You know, all the world is a stage, sort of a Shakespearean point. Mm -hmm. Point um, that um, the show must go on, and that in yeah, what what is the quote that in 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 his time, men will play many roles, mm -hmm. um, and um, something like that. Paraphrase. But mind not me, mind the entrenchments. Remember the cause. Remember the goal. That, uh, you know, like Jesus would say, remember the Father. I come in the name of the Father. It doesn't matter about me. It matters the goal. 
you know, the kingdom of heaven. And well, it's as if he's saying that that is the reason why he can have the sort of pretense to write a poem like this. Like so often I've heard literary critics say, what is it, why does he think he is allowed to do this? And just going along with your, your, uh, your, your mentioning distant and dead resuscitated, it's like, what do you mean? How does he dare do this? He has to. Because if he doesn't, it doesn't get resuscitated. The poet, poetry doesn't continue in a chain, a golden chain, a long time. Like somebody has to give it a shot. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's quote about the man in the arena as opposed to the critic. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's as if what he's saying to people is, you have to embody a role for that role to continue to exist. And that role is more important than you. And actually the meaning of your life is defined by how well you, you play the role that you either pick or, well, in America, that you get to pick, which is an amazing thing. Right. And, and this is all like in movement as well, is what strikes me here. Like you, you embody your role, but you also are that which embodies roles. And, yes. and sympathize. you sympathize with those below you and you aspire to those above you. And you feel, as Whitman does, the kind of ultimate equivalence that you have and this like reverence that you have at that, at that fact, right? So, so he, there's movement in, in space, there's movement in time, movement across the seas, right? Like going towards that goal and, and staying on the course, right? And, um, and sticking to your duty, of course, there's all that. But there's also the slave, right, going... He's hounded because he's being chased because he's escaping is what I'm taking from that, right? There's, there's that sort of movement, and that's historical as well as geographic. Uh, Whitman, of course, is writing the poem over the course of the, the period of time where slavery is a huge issue, and then the Civil War occurs, and he's still writing the poem, and then, you know, like 30 years later, uh, finishes it, I guess. So he sort of sees that whole generational um, upheaval uh, and and he then concludes with the general right so I think there's a pretty close um, association here to me at least in this part of uh, with the with the conflagration of the war itself with all of the uh, naval and land battles that go with that with um, the uh, political and social problems that go with that, and that that's sort of like a one of those one of those experiences which um, is essential, right? For for poems, right? That's where a lot of epics uh, take their material, but also just to understand what it means to um, to say there's something more important than my life. Well, yeah, and that I think that plays out both in the social world and in the mythological world. Here's the form. The old blind father becomes corrupt and dies or is betrayed by the, the dark um, advisor. Scar in The Lion King, uh, Jafar in Aladdin. Um, and uh, if one ever listens to Peterson, there's a very similar idea in the Egyptian mythology with, um, with um, Horus. Or, or rather his father Osiris getting tricked by Set or um, the fall of man in uh, Christianity or Hebrew or in Jewish mythology 
by a serpent or a dark idea, um, and also in Mesopotamian mythology with Marduk, or rather the death of um, the consort of Tiamat. I'm forgetting what Apsu was his name. He was freshwater and she was saltwater. Um, and um, so the idea seems to be that the old, the old king dies and then needs to be re-embodied by the hero of Halight, Jesus, uh, Hercules, Marduk, uh, uh, sort of Dionysus are similar figures of the, the dying and being reborn God, the, the father who dies, who is then re-embodied by the son. And that that is sort of a, also an idea of how human generations move on and how sort of ideas of how humans should live in general, the general here, can die but need to be replaced by new, more sophisticated ideas of how humans can live in general because humans live in general with each other, right? Like in America, we have 350 million people and what binds us together is not blood, but some, some shared ideals. And so when like the old ideals start to die, like the death of God, like Nietzsche talks about, well, they need to be re-embodied. And he seems to be saying this, uh, not only from a mythological standpoint, because that is how it works in mythology, but suggesting that the mythological standpoint is actually representative of how social uh, change happens. And that real social change happens from, you know, putting to bed an old way of being based on an old idea, but by replacing it with a new, better, in general idea. And I would argue that that's the piece that we've been missing in our culture. Mm -hmm. We're totally good at killing things, but not resuscitating. <laughs> it takes it takes a lot of um a lot of hindsight i guess ultimately and if we don't have a sense of history we're gonna have a we're gonna have a lot of difficulty with that um that sort of visioning process right but yeah yeah so all right uh, that's wow that's stirring stuff yeah yeah well excellent friday love having you um um uh, we have some announcements for people coming up but um, things are starting to move faster. We're getting more listeners. Uh, Wes finally has somebody donating to his podcast. So that's great. He's being paid for what he does now. We're <laughs> soon going to try and put some things together and see if we can do some pledge drive sort of things. Nothing, nothing much, nothing big. Just, uh, you know, we're starting to get our feet wet. We're trying to ourselves resuscitate something. Yeah. And again, any ideas, comments, critiques are welcome. Um, we will be continuing to do this project and we've got a few others as well, uh, wrapping up Harry Potter, um, continuing almost the end of disc one of Final Fantasy seven at this point, uh, and some different writing schemes, different irons in the fire. So, uh, thanks for listening guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.